Once held at gunpoint while conducting research in Peru, Fred Bryant feared for his life. Find out how this award-winning wildlife conservationist left a legacy of research and development throughout the world. Also learn some very interesting facts about the famous King Ranch, which encompasses nearly a million acres in South Texas, on this fascinating and educating episode of A Tale to Tell. I'm your host, Don Roberts, and I'd like to welcome Dr. Fred Bryant to the podcast today. Hello, Fred. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. good. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. I'm honored that you take the time to come on and tell us your story. You are one of the greatest wildlife researchers and conservationists in the United States. And for those that maybe don't know, what, what does that mean? You know, for me, it's... Uh... Conservation is taking care of those species out there that mean so much to us. And uh, it's conserving the habitats, conserving the animals, the species. And, and uh, the interesting thing is I'm a hunter. And I've been a hunter all my life. And people ask me, well, how, does, how can you be a conservationist and be a hunter? And, and my answer is that through hunting, I learned to love all those species that we care about. And not just the ones I hunted. And if it wasn't for hunting, I'm not sure I'd ever made a career. In, mm -hmm. this, in this field so it's interesting you brought that up down the road i want to talk about harvesting animals and how important that is for the animals for ourselves yeah. and um sure so before we get into your story career um you you have numerous accolades i'd like to just go over some of those for our listeners um 20 years you were texas a&m director of wildlife research institute 20 years professor of range management at texas tech university uh, research was conducted in Bolivia, Morocco, Peru, Mexico. You've co-authored five books, written numerous journals and articles, bulletins and reports. Um, 1995, you're president of the International uh, Society for Range Management. 2005, Sam Beeson Conservation Leadership Award for Texas Wildlife Association. 2011, one of four finalists, Budweiser Conservationist of the Year. 2016, Texas Outdoorsman of the Year. 2017, South Texan of the Year. And in 2017, you were inducted into the Texas Conservation Hall of Fame. Right. Wow. That's, uh, that's quite a resume <laughs> there, like Fred. about somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're a humble man. That's just really outstanding. I hope uh, and pray that you're proud of yourself. Um, I know your family is, and I'm sure there's a, a ton of people in Texas uh, <laughs> and all over the world that are. Before we get into some of your interesting uh, adventures, if you will, yeah. uh, let's go back in time. I'd like to know a little bit about your, about your childhood and whatnot. Sure. I, I understand you're a, are you a seventh generation Texan? Uh, yeah. Okay, generation. so... Let's, let's hear about your childhood a little yeah. bit. So, uh, well, my ancestor came to Texas in 1822, settled in East Texas. And so I'm officially a member of the Texas, of the Sons of the Republic of Texas okay. because of that. And, and you, have to be, you have to have an ancestor in Texas before 1845 when Texas became a republic in order to qualify. So I just got in a year ago, so I'm pretty proud of that. That's neat. I grew up on the outskirts of San Antonio, Texas. Uh, a little town called Helotus, and it was about 20 miles out of town. 
we had some land out there, not much, but boarded horses growing up. My grandfather, who got me into all this career that I'm in today, his influence was, number one, he was a hunter, and number two, he was a horseman and a rancher. So growing up, my dad was a chemist by trade. So, so my dad's influence was more the fact that you can, you can do this in college. You can get a degree. Don't be scared of it, you know. And in fact, I ended up with three degrees. So uh, I kind of liked it once I got into the, at the learning arena. But, so I took after my grandfather and, and, and his passion for ranching, hunting, and, and those kind of things. Um, so, uh, and, and growing up, my brothers neither went to college. Uh, my dad did, and uh, and my my mom never went to college. But uh, I ended up going to Texas Tech University as an undergraduate uh, on a football scholarship, of all things. What position did you play? Uh, I practiced a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on now! <laughs> I was in, uh, recruited as a quarterback and a defensive back. And, uh, the Red Raiders, right? Yeah, the Red Raiders. So we have a whole family now of Raiders. And, and the interesting thing is, after I, I got my master's at Utah State uh, over in Logan, Utah, and my doctorate at A&M, and I ended up at Texas Tech teaching on the same with the same faculty that were teaching me seven years earlier, which was no, an interesting falling. dynamic. <laughs> no kidding, yeah. that is. So, uh, so uh, I ended up at Texas Tech teaching there in 1977 after I finished my doctorate at A&M. But I had a, a great childhood. You know, I, I had a BB gun in my hand from the time I, they let me have one. Uh, ended up shooting a lot of birds that I probably shouldn't have shot, like mm. the state bird of Texas. And <laughs> Which is? The mockingbird. Okay. That was before they listed it, they declared it as the state bird. But anyway, so I grew up as a passionate hunter and uh, had no... Uh, qualms about it, no regrets, and uh, it led me into a career of conservation, so, and I'm proud of that, so. Absolutely. So once you got out of school, what was your first, you know, what direction did you go, and what, yeah, what was maybe? Yeah, I mean, as a, my doctorate, or, or my well, Once you got done with all of your schooling, what, yeah. where did, where did you head? Did you stay yeah. in Texas? Did yeah. you start, okay. Yeah, so there were basically three jobs for my expertise, which was range animal nutrition, and uh, when I got out of uh, Texas A&M for my doctorate, and one was in Berkeley, California, which I can't, I, I wear a cowboy hat. I was going to say, you'd look a little, you'd look a little out of place to me in, in the <laughs> yeah. Bay Area. Berkeley wasn't. I was offered mm -hmm. a position in Berkeley, and, mm -hmm. and that didn't line up with me. And there was one more. But, so my wife was a great uh, supporter of mine. She said, because uh, I had another job that, that was interesting to take, but she said, you know, you said, when you first started in your education that you wanted to do teaching and research at a university. And the other job was not at a university, it was an extension specialist. But So she said, we're going to love it. <laughs> so, yes, ma'am. So I said, thank you, that's where we'll head. So we, uh, we started at Texas Tech in uh, 1977, raised our three kids in love, and they all graduated from Texas Tech. And two of their spouses are tech grads, so we're a big Texas Tech family. Boy, yeah, okay. So I wish they played football a little better. <laughs> I think I could play for them now. Oh. <laughs> so that's kind of my childhood. Um, little town, Lotus, was an interesting place to grow up. Back in those days, 
there were a lot of dairies out there, a lot of ranching and dairies. And to, there were 26 dairies in that western San Antonio area in, in the, out, outside of town. Now there's not one. So it, it's a different, whole different community. There's houses now where I used to shoot my BB gun. Boy, thank so, goodness for the memories because the landscape yeah, certainly oh, changes, totally. doesn't That's, it? I hate to go back to, mm -hmm. to see all the, uh, the development. So especially being a conservationist, you know, you hate to see... Uh, the habitat turned into houses and strip malls. So Fred, did your, did your job ever take you to other places beyond Texas? Yeah, so uh, early on, uh, I, uh, when I first got to Texas Tech, I wrote a, a grant proposal that was submitted to the United States Agency for International Development. And it was a project to help people in developing countries basically do a better job raising their livestock, right? So, uh, so this this team of scientists from all over the United States, um, there were 16 universities involved, and, and my project uh, ended up in, in Peru. And I started there in '79 with a project to help the basically the poorest of the poor, uh, and, and those would be the the Indians, uh, the Inca background natives in the high Andes. We all our work was above 14,000 feet elevation. Oh my and gosh! So it was it was pretty high, and the Andes are an interesting grassland. So they were raising llamas, alpacas, and sheep were their primary species. So this project took me there in '79, and, and one thing I thought when I first the first trip I made there was so fascinating. They were having their first election in 50 years because they were run by dictators and socialists, and you know. Uh, communists and all, all kinds of people. Well, <clears throat> they had a, a, a democratic election in '79, and I, I landed in, and went to Lima, and I noticed the people all had a purple thumb. And I thought, what? And I asked my friend, who turned out to be one of my best Peruvian friends, I said, "What? What are these people with purple thumbs about?" He said, "Well, we just had an election, and if you voted, you dip your thumb in indelible ink." So number one, they knew you voted, and who you couldn't vote again, right? And number two, they knew who didn't vote. You know, Interesting. So it's an embarrassing way to get people to vote. Sure. And to me, they should do that in the United States. That's the easiest way to get to put pressure on people to vote. Number one, and know who who did and who didn't. Seems pretty and, simple. Anyway, well, they had a pretty simple process, and it worked. Uh, so I started there in '79, and and uh, we set up some research stations up in the high Andes uh, between. Cusco, which is the, if you go to Machu Picchu, you would you would fly from Lima to Cusco, and then catch a train down to Machu Picchu. Well, our experiment stations that we set up were between Cusco and Puno, which is down on Lake Titicaca. So everything rocked along pretty well for the first few years, and then there was a, a Maoist group of uh, terrorists that showed up and started training people, uh, and they were actually trained in, in China, as way I understand it to be Maoist terrorists, and, uh, um, and the, so the, the last three years I was going to Peru, it was a Class A security risk for Americans. Uh, the other two were Colombia, uh, Bogota, Colombia, and Kabul, Afghanistan, and Lima, Peru. Those were the three security risks, the highest security risk for Americans. So I was traveling <laughs> to Peru at a time when I was hearing 
dynamite go off in the city and machine gun fire and things like that. It, you didn't have a bodyguard, so how, uh, ner- how nervous were you uh, on your on those trips? You know, uh, it, when I when I hear dynamite go off, you know, down the street mm. in, in the, from the hotel I'm staying in, it was made me nervous. It was that close. Yeah, and I you know I had I had a close call one night coming in late at the airport. Uh, they, they they had a, a curfew. And if you were found on the streets after 10 p.m. to 6 a.m., they took you to jail because they thought you were a terrorist. So they took, they were trying to clean the streets of anybody. And so I, my flight was late getting into Lima, and my Peruvian friend picked me up. And, and at the airport, you'd get a pass from the police that says, this, this guy just came in from the United States. He's okay. You know, so I had my pass, and I wasn't Peruvian. And so we're, we're going from Lima, or the airport to Lima. And there are two guys standing on the road, side of the road with machine guns. And they both had sweaters on like you're wearing. And so I asked my friend Arturo, I said, are these guys terrorists or police? And he said, I don't know, but if we don't stop, they're gonna kill us either way. We're, you know, we have to stop. And you couldn't tell they didn't have any markings of being police or terrorists or what. So we pull up and we roll our windows down and I stick the machine guns, one in my ribs and one in his ribs. Holy mackerel. And uh, they asked me for the pass. And because they were actually police controlling the curfew. And so I had my pass, otherwise I don't know what, don't know what they'd have done. But then they, they looked at the pass, they let us go through. They probably would have shot you? Yeah, yeah, if we would have driven through, it was a blockade, essentially, but uh, and if you hadn't had the pass on you, they probably would have killed you as well. well. They, they, Maybe they could have. They could have hauled me off to jail or something. But my, anyway. my goodness. So we, uh, so the first seven years were peaceful, and and uh, and I would basically fly to Lima and fly to Cusco, and then and I'd spend two three weeks down there with my people that I'd hired to be there. We had graduate students, and and uh, one night they came into. I built a research station halfway between Cusco and Puno and uh, they came in one night and uh, the terrorists and I had two graduate students living there one with his wife and one single and they held everybody at machine gun point threatened to kill everybody <laughs> and uh, wow. and and took uh, and my two graduate students they said go get your passports and so they went back to their hostel they were living in and they gave they said that's all you're leaving here with basically and they blew up his, they blew up our labs with dynamite, set his house on fire and everything he owned, and the two graduate students, and they hightailed it back to Cusco. And I get a call <laughs> that night. Anyway, so it, it, two years later, we pulled out of Peru because they murdered a couple of our people on a, on a, on a, on a our project. Oh, my goodness. And a Peruvian. They uh, shot him in the head and blew the Jeep up about 10 miles from our research station. So, oh my gosh, Fred. So we got run out of Peru by the terrorists. That was an interesting story. <laughs> my, yeah, that's that's not one that uh, too many up, people have in their Ended up pocket. in Bolivia for five years. Um, we just basically moved the project into Bolivia, and, and it was peaceful over there. And uh, but so we, what, helped, we, we believe, I think, we really helped those people understand how to raise lot, their livestock, basically sheep, alpaca, llamas. Uh, the most interesting thing was that we found out that if you're going to help people develop um, knowledge about livestock, you don't send the man, you send the woman. 
is your extension specialist because the, 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 the people who control the herds are women, not the men. The men sit around drinking. You know, Interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. Well, we didn't either. You know, when we first got there. So we began to develop women extension specialists to work with the people who really controlled the livestock. It wasn't the men; it was the women. So I thought that was an interesting, you know, interesting way to do business. But and, and we ended up uh, developing a whole team of women extension specialists to help the women who really control the livestock. Yeah. And I I don't I don't know a ton about farming and ranching. I grew up over in the San Luis Valley and. As a youngster, we had cattle and sheep, and mm-hmm. um, not that my sisters didn't aid in that, but I have three older brothers, and they, they and my dad did the majority of the work. Um, so just a different culture, right? Yeah. Yeah, very, di- very sure. different very culture. Different. They, were great. they were great people. I mean, the Peruvians were awesome. The culture is fascinating to me. Then we ended up in Bolivia. I had a project in Morocco for a couple of years. Got to visit Indonesia, Australia, and did some world traveling because of this project, and so... That was a whole chapter in my life. Yeah. You know, with internationally. I also did a lot of work in Texas. and, and uh, So it's my understanding that you have uh, some type of a connection with the King Ranch. Uh-huh. And for those that don't know about the King Ranch, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not called King because it's giant, even though it is giant. It's just south of a million acres, correct? Right. 825,000. Right. Which... Which my understanding is, that's about twelve hundred square miles, ish. I'd have to do the math, but yeah, that's what sounds I, about right. Bigger than Rhode Island. Yeah, bigger than the state of Rhode Island. <coughs> Roughly thirty-five. It's in four tracks, I believe. Right. But that's thirty-five miles by thirty-five miles. If it was one piece mm-hmm. of property, and it encompasses four counties, correct? Well, it's located in four. Four, counties, four different yeah. counties. Yeah. It's just. It's mind-boggling to yeah. me. I've never been there. Um, tell us, if you will, uh, sure. as much as you'd like to, yeah. maybe, uh, about the King Ranch and sure. how, maybe a little history on it and, yeah. and how you were involved with it. Sure, that'd be fun. Uh, so, uh, after I was at Texas Tech for 20 years, I told my wife, Janice, she's my biggest supporter and my best friend, she said, uh, I said, I told her, I said, the only job I would leave Texas Tech for is to go down to Kingsville, Texas and run this, what's called the Caesar Clayberg Wildlife Research Institute. And it's a, it's a institute that does nothing but wildlife research, a master's and doctoral program. It's embedded at Texas and in Kingsville. And it's a privately funded institute, which is a, a, a unique model. Not many privately funded institutes, privately funded programs at any public university. So all of our funding all but 20% came from private sources. And a lot of those sources were King Ranch family members. Kingsville is, is where uh, where the ranch started in 1853. So uh, Captain King was a riverboat captain out of Alabama and ended up in Texas to support the war with Mexico in 1846. And the, the, I could go on for... Uh, hours about it. This is the most fascinating ranch, the most iconic ranch in the world. And if, you, if most people, if they've only heard of one ranch, it would be King Ranch. And uh, so Captain King uh, founded it in 1853. By the time he died in 1885 of liver cancer, he had grown it to 600,000 acres. His wife, Henrietta, who he married in Brownsville, Texas in, in 1854, 
she outlived him 25 years. So he died in 1885. She died in 1925. In those 40 years, she doubled the ranch. My goodness. So she, she got it to 1.2 million acres. Got to put it in the hands well, of a woman, Fred. <laughs> exactly. She was, she was an amazing, amazing woman. And uh, so at, at 1.2 million, and it was all located south of San Antonio, between San Antonio and, and Brownsville. Some of it on the coast. Some of it inland, but totally uh, uh, big ranching country, you know. Uh, very difficult to ranch there because the, the droughts and uh, rainfall so unpredictable, and, and, uh, but it's a tough place to ranch. But they made it work. They, Captain King actually, uh, he knew nothing about ranching. He knew nothing about livestock. Not a thing. You and I know more than he does, or he did. He well, you do. Yeah. Me, that's questionable. <laughs> no, you said you had horses and cattle, so you know too. But uh, so when he first founded the ranch in 1853, he knew he didn't know anything about it. And the smartest thing he ever did was not go to the east, eastern seaboard to find people to help him raise cattle. He knew that he knew this was going to be a ranch. It's grassland, and it was great ranch. You know, looked good in 1853. So he goes into Mexico, and that had a terrible drought, and I think a little town was called Cruyas, and he, those people were basically starving to death. And he said, look, if you'll come up and help me run my ranch, and about 100 people moved from Cruyas, Mexico, up to his ranch, and they knew how to ranch in desert country. Smart. They weren't, they weren't from Kentucky and Virginia. They, you know, you, you, in that kind of rainfall, it's a different... Whole no. different, yeah. But these people knew how to ranch in, de in dry country and desert country. So they all came up, and to this day, they are still descendants of those people who came up and helped him start ranching in 1853 and 1854, which is a, another. And they were very loyal to Captain King. You know, he took care of them and Mrs. King and, and the family ever since. So, so to me, that's a fascinating history of the, of the ranch that they. He just knew better than to go to, you know. South Carolina and try to help find people helping ranch. Even that's, in Mexico. A, that's very wise. Fred, what are some of the animals? I'm, I can only imagine, but just, just some of the different animals that they had on the ranch. Oh, gosh. Uh, so, South Texas, interestingly enough, is one of the diverse, most diverse places in the United States. People don't realize that. I would have never guessed that. No, the biodiversity is, is, is high. It's higher than the Everglades. The only other place in the United States that you have higher biodiversity are what we call the Sky Islands in Arizona, where you have these levels of different habitats as you move up from desert to high mountain, right? So there's high biodiversity there because of the different habitats that animals can live in. But South Texas is the second most biodiverse area in the whole United States, and, and most people would have never guessed that. I would have never in a million years guessed there's that. There's a lot of reasons for that. One is you've got the coast, you're on the coast, the South Texas coast, from Corpus Christi down to Brownsville, so you get all the water birds that are migrating through, and we've done some studies on bird migration that'll just blow you away with the, the numbers of species that migrate through down all the way down into South America and back, right? So you've got a great migration. You're sitting in the middle of a, the greatest migration corridor of any place in North America on that Texas coast, on the South Texas coast. Not, not Houston, not Galveston, but 
from Corpus Christi down to Brown, and all the way into Mexico and into South America. So you're sitting on a migration corridor of millions and millions of birds that migrate through there. Ninety-five percent of all the redhead ducks in the in the United States winter on the Texas coast. Ninety-five percent of the redheads. If anybody knows anything about redhead ducks, and so you've got you've got waterfowl, wetland birds. And we've done some fascinating studies on those species. Reddish egrets, for example. I mean, I just think about some it, of these things. I don't mean to interrupt you. Is a merganser considered a redheaded duck? No, merganser is a different duck. Okay. Yeah, a redhead is there. There's different species. Okay. Um, mergansers eat fish. Redheads eat eat. They they graze on the roots of. Of plants that grow at the bottom of the of the shallow beds of, of South Texas, but reddish egrets, for example, we did a study on them, and and everybody thought they wintered, you know, they spent their whole life on the Texas coast. Well, when we got some radio collars on reddish egrets, we were finding them in, in South America and Colombia. I mean, people, you know, they just they just didn't know, you know. So you've got you got the Texas coast, and as you move inland, you're going from basically 30 inches of rainfall, and you get to the Rio Grande River, just 120 miles to the west, and you're down to 12 inches of rainfall. So you've got this huge gradient of high rainfall to, to desert, and, and all the habitats in between there that can support a lot of different species. So, and, and the biodiversity of the soil types is, is, which creates plant diversity, which creates animal diversity, is, is pretty remarkable from the Texas coast as you get in, all the way into the Rio Grande River. So you've got uh, soils, habitats that are different, plant species that are different as you move in from the coast inland, uh, which creates this great biodiversity that nobody knows about. Yeah. <laughs> the greatest birders in the world go to South Texas. That's where they go to bird. There's about 460 species of birds that either migrate through or or, or, or full-time residents of South Texas. So that's quite a, an array of birds. There's over 2,000 plant species in South Texas. 2,000. My gosh. Yeah. Now, how about as far as land animals? I'd like to talk about land animals as, as well yeah. as water. Um, um, you know, white-tailed deer. Are, are the, so South Texas has become a haven for, for hunting and because of the rich diversity and the, and the high productivity of species like quail, uh, white-tailed deer, people, these ranchers, and King Ranch does this too, so they started leasing out land for hunting back in 18, uh, 1984, I think was the first year they leased. So they'll lease these big pastures of 20,000 acres to, to hunting groups that will come in and hunt. Only 20,000? Only 20,000 yeah. acres. Yeah. 25,000. Just a small little, <laughs> small little tract of, right. of ground. Right. No, and, they're, and they have what they're, they're, they, they deal with basically corporate, a structure with a corporate, corporate structure in that they only want to deal with one person. They don't want to deal with 10 guys who want to hunt together. So there are a lot of corporations like U.S. Sugar. Uh, that lease, uh, you know, there. So, so they lease about uh, four hundred thousand acres, and and this the that leasing and hunting program generates uh, a third of the income for the ranch. They're just a, they're a huge agricultural company. They're almost like a little country. Well, yeah, and they own they own the highest they're, they're the highest um, owner of citrus in Florida. They have sugar cane in Florida. Uh, so their their income 
for the family. It's not. Oil and gas plays a role. Oil and gas got them. You bet. Well, Mrs. King died in, in uh, 1925, and they were dealing with huge estate taxes. Huge. With 1.2 million acres when she died. Can't fathom that. Yeah, I can't either. And so and there was a 10-year moratorium when she after she died to, to sort out the estate and figure out um, you know heirs and who's going to get what, all that kind of stuff. Well, in the meantime, Humble Oil and Gas came in in 1932 and decided to lease King Summer King Ranch for drilling for oil. And back then, they didn't drill for natural gas, just oil. That basically covered the estate tax. Saved their it saved, saved them, the ranch. Right? I mean, the ranch would have would have been split up. I don't know how many. They had to sell half of it to pay the estate taxes. Yeah. So it was a blessing for Humble Oil to come in and say, we want to lease. Well, it paid off for Humble Oil, which is now Exxon, which is now Exxon Mobil. Right? Okay, I did not know right. that. So it, it paid off big time for the oil and gas company. It wasn't like they were, you know, the ranch was a beneficiary of some charity, you know, anyway. So, so anyway, um, so they lease, uh, their current income for, for the ranch is sod. They, they raise sod for housing developments in Houston and San Antonio. That's big. Sugar cane and citrus. They're the largest citrus grower in the United States. Uh, hunting and, and wildlife, basically. Cattle, uh, they run about 25,000 mother cows, which is a, quite a number to keep up with. <laughs> I can't imagine. Uh, no. And I've been all over that ranch, uh, all 825,000 acres. They've got about 500 windmills, and I can't tell you how many miles of fence, but I, I, I think about my career and, and my management, uh, I guess, abilities, and I could probably manage 100,000 acres, but I don't think I have the capacity to think about 825,000 acres, 25,000 mother cows. I, it's, it's an amazing It's mind-boggling, really. Yeah. And, I, I'd love to see it someday. <laughs> well, you should. And they do tours. Mm -hmm. You know, they do tours. Uh, it's a limited tour, and if you go with me, I'll take you. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get outside the fences and or inside the ranch. But. Fred, I want to talk to you. So what about fishing? Um, is that a, I'm assuming there's a fair amount or not, maybe well, not that much. but redfish and okay. trout. So inland, inland lakes or rivers, is that, nah, that's no, pretty minuscule if nothing. Okay. In fact, going back to the recent Captain King picked that location when he bought the first Mexican land grant in 1853. He bought it on a, on a creek called Santa Gertrudis Creek. And the ranch is the Santa Gertrudis Ranch. It had been called the Santa Gertrudis Ranch until Mrs. King died. Now it's King Ranch. And the people that drive King Ranch pickups may not know it, but there is a ranch that, that carries that name, King Ranch. Yeah, it's not just a Ford product, right? No, they, they <laughs> do, and they do pretty well on the royalties mm -hmm. on the, the pickups. But uh, Santa Gertrudis Creek is the, when Captain King decided to ranch there, it's the only live water between there and the Rio Grande River. So, and there's no fish to speak of in there. It's not. That's a, a lot of dirt. Yeah, yeah, and 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 it, and he knew, after traveling up from Brownsville by horse, he knew that you know when he hit that water that that was a permanent water source, and that was if you could control that water source and buy up around it, then you control a lot. So, so it was from the from the. Santa Gertrudis Creek to the Rio Grande River was called the Desierto de los Muertos, the Desert of the Dead, because there was no water. 
Mm. And people that traveled across there would die of thirst, you know, back in the, you know, back in the day. You, you know? bet, yeah. So, and it's also called the Wild Horse Desert, you know, and, and so it's an interesting, it's a tough place to ranch, but it's great biodiversity. Well, thank you for that. I mean, I'm getting so educated here. I, and speaking of water, my, my wife's from back east, you know, in the Michigan area, and when she moved out here 25 years ago, I said, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. Right. I said, water is so valuable. Yeah. And she, she didn't know what I meant by that, and she does now. So, Fred, without King Branch being worth probably unbelievable millions and millions of dollars, why, do you, why didn't they sell it off? That's a great question. You know, if you look at most big ranches in this country, by the third generation or fourth generation, they split it and sell it because they fight over the land and they don't, who gets what piece of land? And instead of splitting the ranch, they split the money. And then somebody else divides the ranch. And that's happening all across this country with large uh, ownership. This family, they are now into, the fifth generation is my age, I'm 72. So the kids, my, my kids' age kids are sixth generation. The kids that are being born today are eight, nine generations. But that family has kept that ranch together since 1853. And, 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 it's, it's, and most of it is the conservation ethic that they all are passionate about. It's not about the cattle. It, the, the iconic name and the iconic ranch is sure one thing, but they're all conservation-minded. They contribute to conservation organizations all over the country. And, and, but they kept a ranch together in the heart of the greatest biodiversity in the United States because they want to conserve it for future generations. Not because they could easily split that ranch up and each of them could walk away with who knows how many millions of dollars. It's worth billions. Sure. And so, but they haven't. They, they kept it together. They're, they're committed. You know, they, they, you know they have arguments about how the ranch should be run. How many kids are there? Well, let's see, their fifth generation, there's about 40 of them. The next generation, there's probably 80 of them. So all total, uh, when Mrs. King died, they set up the family corporation, and and everybody is is has heir, the heirs have stock in that corporation. It's a private corporation. You can't buy into it, Don. I know you'd like to buy into it. No, I'm glad. I, yeah, no, I uh, not that I could, but I think that's uh, great no, that nobody can. It's a, it's a private. Found it's a private company, and only the only the heirs are shareholders, and they they have so many shares depending on how close they were to Captain King and Mrs. You know, uh, there's one lady named Henrietta uh, Helenita Clayburg who's uh, she's 96, you know, and so her shares will go to her descendants, and she had five kids. Uh, if you had another descendant that only had one kid, well, they got more shares, you know. So that's how the stocks are divided up, but. But the, the fact remains that that family is committed to keeping a ranch together. It's number one, one of the most famous ranches in the world. They used to have ranch land in Argentina and Australia. They were 12 million acres at one time. 12 million in acres? 18, in the 1950s, they got to 12 million acres worldwide. They had 10 million acres in Australia alone. Morocco, Spain. Unbelievable. Yeah, the only Texas horse to ever win the Triple Crown is a King Ranch horse named Basalt. So they had Ar Argentina, Brazil, and they were a worldwide ranching company. Uh, it's just, it's a fascinating thing. But they're down to the 825,000 acres in Texas plus 
probably have 30,000 or so acres in Florida with citrus and sugarcane. Uh, they used to have uh, cotton in Arizona. They got rid of that. But anyway, they, they kept a ranch together that's pretty special, and, and, it's, uh, and they're all conservation-minded people. And I'm glad you, you asked me to talk about that because I think it's important for people to know. They're not just land barons that want to make money. They are conservationists at heart. Yeah. Amen. <clears throat> Glad, glad to hear it. Hopefully it'll it'll never go anywhere. <laughs> I hope not. Yeah. You need to see it one day. I hope so. Fred, help help us all understand why it's so important, why hunting and fishing yeah. are so important. And it's not just this masculine, I want to go kill something and I want to prove that I can do this. And talk to us about harvesting animals and, and, and what a role that plays. Yeah. Well... Um... If it weren't for hunters, there wouldn't be any wildlife in this country. If you go back to Teddy Roosevelt and his friends that formed the Boone and Crockett Club in, in 1885, it was hunters, it wasn't non-hunters, it wasn't anti-hunters, it was hunters who said, we're gonna protect wildlife in this country. And we're gonna set up wildlife refuges, which Roosevelt was one of the first that set up one in Florida. Uh, we're going we're gonna to write about protecting and conserving habitat and land and, and wildlife, not because we want to we kill them. We want to conserve them because we have this conservation ethic about us, because we're hunters. That was what I tried to get across to you early on when you were asking me about that. The, all the wildlife, they were the ones that moved bison out of Yellowstone and started repopulating an elk out of Yellowstone into Colorado. There wouldn't be any elk in Colorado today, except they moved them from Yellowstone here in like 1915 to replenish populations that were killed out. They were killed out because of meat hunting, market hunting, not because of sport hunting and people today like me that go hunting. They were killed because people, the miners needed meat. Mm -hmm. These guys up here at Silverton and Everywhere else that needed to eat something, they had to. They were supplied meat by with deer and elk. Well, they wiped out the elk in Colorado, and, uh, and up into by 1900, I think. So, so hunters were the ones that, that brought elk into Colorado and repopulated them. And so, there's million stories where Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation does more to conserve habitat than any other group. And and, and I was on their board for 10 years. I get passionate about this because I, I think people misjudge um, the whole hunting population. I know they do. I know they do too. Yeah. I mean, I grew up hunting kind of like yourself. I had a BB gun when I was, you know, knee high and a 22 and then, you know, a deer rifle, an elk rifle right. and shotgun and, you know, bird hunted and whatnot. And like a lot of things, if we don't have the education in something, then we have a um, that lack of knowledge and we jump to conclusions sure. and I know even friends of mine and family and whatnot that I think have uh, the wrong idea about mm -hmm. hunting and obviously there's going to always be those few that maybe all they do care about is killing the animal yeah um, but there, there probably are but that, I think it's a really really small minority of the I do too the, the people that 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 support the Ducks Unlimited and Rocky. You look at all the, the, the conservation groups in this country that really do amazing things for wetlands, protecting wetlands. Ducks Unlimited for 80, 100 years has been buying up wetlands to protect them for waterfowl. 
And that, that includes other wetland birds. It mm -hmm. doesn't just affect ducks yeah. that yeah, they like to hunt. It affects, you know. Yeah, it's preservation, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's preserving the land. Yeah. It's educating people yeah. from the time they're young. Yeah. I know Ducks Unlimited does a fabulous job of doing that with little little shavers yeah. and, and, and helping them understand. There's, a, there's, a, there, there's probably 20 or 30 conservation organizations that are they're, they're focused around an animal that people love to hunt. Elk. Mule deer, ducks, quail—you know—but but, but it, the end result is that they they end up protecting the habitat for species that are hunted, that everybody else cares about, that are not hunters, you know. And it's that's a win-win. Huh? It's a win-win. Yeah, it is. And 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 if they get get more credit. There wouldn't be a Colorado Parks and Wildlife Department if it wasn't for the license fees paid by hunters. Who's going to do? Who's going to pay for that? Exactly. It's not the anti hunters. Exactly. I guarantee you, they're not going to pay for the, the support of management of all the wildlife in this in parks in this state i get aggravated well as, <laughs> as you should i mean you've dedicated your whole life to this you understand it arguably better than maybe anybody in the united states oh, and so i i, I uh it's been a fun career i'll say that what no uh regrets. What, what's the most what's been the most significant achievement in your career if you had to pick one there's probably five different things. I couldn't name one, but all the graduate students that we've trained, that personally I have have had doctoral, I've got doctoral students that are teaching at, at universities across the country and, and master's students that are working for the U.S. Forest Service and the BLM and the state of New Mexico. And, and not only my students, but the ones that, that we trained when I was at Texas Tech and the ones we trained when I was at the Cesar Clayburn Wildlife Research Institute. Uh, there, are th there are four of our former graduates that are working out of the Santa Fe office for New Mexico Game and Fish right now. I mean, to see those kids who came in with, you know, big eyes and wanting to do things have a, had an effect on conservation at, at, a, at a national and global scale, it's, it's heartwarming and it's, it's really cool. That's powerful. <laughs> so I'd say, that, you know, to see... To, to create a whole new generation of wildlife biologists and conservationists that are out there doing great things for wildlife, whether they're in Florida or Colorado or California. And we, we've had an impact on those. Now, me personally, maybe, but at least people that work for me. I had 20 scientists that work for me at, at Kingsville. So, and we trained masters and doctoral students and uh, did work on black bears in Mexico and ocelots, the endangered ocelot. We're the center of the universe when it comes to knowledge about endangered ocelots. So, so endangered species work we've done, and, and species that are not hunted, and, and so, so we have a, a big impact. Um, I think uh, my 10 years with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation was, was very important in my career because I got to be a part of a, a, a national organization and a national board that did some great things for, for conservation of habitat and, and migration corridors, and not just for elk, but for other species. People don't realize what you're doing for elk, you're doing for a lot Deer of species. Deer and other, yeah, other animals, grouse, right? You know, blue grouse, and sure. oh, name something. Uh, I've, I've been actively involved in the Boone and Crockett Club since 97, and uh, that's been a real rewarding part of my career. So. I would say if those three things, uh, training graduate students and getting them out into their their love, they, they come there with a love of, of, of wildlife and habitat and they want to do something good and to see them succeed 
and to see him do great things with one of our students that's managing the Florida Panther program in Florida. I mean, those are, that's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, Florida Panthers have been brought back from extinction. And our student has had a, students, we've had more than one over there. So do you see those big success stories popping up from our kids that came in as, you know, 22-year-old kids that wanted to get a master's or, or 26 that wanted to get a doctor's, you know. So anyway, that's been a reward for me. You know. Taking my grandkids hunting has been fun, too. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I can only imagine. Thanks again, Fred. All right. Good I to pre- talk to you. Good talking you. to you. I appreciate you. Yeah, you bet. This podcast is brought to you by the popular books, Wellness Toolbox 1 and 2. These books are available on Amazon as well as at local Durango, Colorado merchants. Purchase your copies today.